I suspect that for many of you over the next couple of weeks, you'll be spending time with family. Maybe people are coming to your house. Maybe you're going to theirs. And it's such a, a great thing to be able to get together with family and, and to, particularly to see folks that you might not get to see on a regular basis. But I suspect that there also are some challenges to that. You know, there are, you know, there's, there's challenges to a variety of ways in which we think about things and, and the things that we talk about. And, and I hear from a variety of people that um, they have some ground rules for when they're together. And one of those is we don't talk about politics. Because people have different opinions and because it is such a, uh, an issue that ignites people. I mean, the reality is we live in a highly politicized time. I assume that people have said that at other times in history and in the history even of our nation. But it feels like it has been heightened significantly. And we're in this time when we have a variety of views about what's happening politically and how we view government and how we view politics in general. And for some people, what they're seeing happen is a good thing. And for other people, it's a not so good thing. But the reality is, we know there is this highly politicized environment in which we live. And I find that fascinating because when you read, particularly Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, it is described in a highly politicized context. Listen again to to the opening few verses of Luke chapter 2. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Do you see what, what he's talking about there? You have, in this, in this brief description, you have mention of the emperor, you have mention of Quirinius, you have mention of a census. Now, for us, when we hear about a census, we think, well, what's the big deal? They're just counting people. That's not what that census was about. The only reason they were counting people was so they could know who to tax what. In fact, when you, if you remember back like when I was a child, when we learned this passage, in fact, as I was reading it, my mind slipped back into the King James Version because that's what I heard so often. And what does it say? It says, and they all went to their town to be taxed. And that's what it is. And what you have here is, this, is the government of Rome saying to the people of Israel and to all the people that they rule, we could crush you like a bug if we wanted to. But we're not going to, but instead, we're going to move you around like pawns and we're going to take money from you because we want everyone to know and to remember and to see who's in charge. We want everybody to know who's the king. And it's not you. Everything about this story that Luke describes for us, everything about the birth of Jesus is in this context of the political environment of that world. It is real. It is sharp. It is invasive. 
And the Roman government, like most governments, wants everyone to know who is in control, who has the power. And it's certainly not a couple traveling on a road to Bethlehem, much less a baby who's going to be born there. I mean, let's be honest. Who in their right mind thinks a baby has any power? I mean, you know, power over grandparents maybe, but not power over anything that really matters in the world, right? I mean, nobody would think, would look at a baby and say, that's the most powerful being in the world. Particularly the baby of common, poor people. I mean, when Jesus is born in the world, he's not born with connections. He has no connections. He's not born to wealth. He's not born to influence. He's not born to power. He's just a common, everyday baby. But what Luke is trying to tell us, one of the things he's trying to tell us, is that this into this highly politicized context, into this context in which it is very clear who has the power and who doesn't, this baby, even though he doesn't seem like it, is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the call of the gospel is to believe that's true. The call of the gospel is to look around at the world, at all the people who seem to have all the power, and to acknowledge with every part of our being that that's a facade. That the real power is in this baby who's born in this obscure village to obscure parents that nobody pays any attention to. That baby, Luke is telling us, is the real king. Now what he also is telling us as the gospel goes along and what we find throughout all of the gospels and the story of scripture is that this is a king who rules over a different kind of kingdom. See, the kingdoms of the world are kingdoms of power. You become the king by exercising power. You maintain your kingship by exercising power. But Luke is telling us this is a different kind of king, and he rules in a different way, and the, and the essence of his kingdom is very different from all the kingdoms of the world. You get a glimpse of that kingdom in Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, he began, beginning of verse 2, he says, The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, like warriors dividing the plunder. And he moved down to verse 6, and he says, For a child is born to us, and a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end, and he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. What kind of kingdom is this baby's kingdom? It is a kingdom of fairness and justice. 
Some translations say justice and righteousness. These two words are communicating much of the same ideas into a world in which people who have power and wealth make all the decisions, who control all the power, who manipulate people who don't have wealth and power and influence. Into that world, this baby comes to be king who will rule with fairness and justice. The word justice has as its, its history, the word it means to be straight. And it's the difference between doing something that is turning crooked and something that is straight as an arrow. It is what the prophet says about, about the, making straight the highway of our God. He's talking about justice. He's talking about smoothing the road so that it is easier to travel, not more difficult to travel. He's talking about about a king who brings fairness to all people in, in a world in which those who have take advantage of those who have not. It's the word of the prophets through the ages about justice and righteousness. God has been concerned about that from the beginning. Many of the laws that God gives to Israel are about how they treat each other, how they treat people who don't have about justice and righteousness. When you read through the prophets, you hear that over and over again. And you hear God's condemnation of his people because they don't care about righteousness and justice and fairness. But this baby does. That's the essence of his kingdom. He comes into a world in which the only thing that matters to most people is how much power you can wield. And he says, no, this is a kingdom about humility and righteousness and compassion and justice and mercy and grace. There are a lot of people who don't want that kind of kingdom. There are a lot of people who say, the kind of kingdom I want is is I want to get the power that I don't have now. I mean, you see it all over the world. Anytime an insurgent group rises up and overthrows the the, the, uh, people in power, they tend to say, we're doing this for the people. This is a movement of the people. And they overthrow the corrupt government. And within a matter of just a few, little bit of time, what ends up happening? They then become the new corrupt government. Because what they're after is power. And we look at that and we shake our heads without realizing that we have a tendency to do the same things. This is a kingdom in which we look at a world, the world differently from everyone else. Think back to the, the, some of the laws that God gives to Israel. One of those talked about a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, is the, is the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years, they are, to, they are to celebrate this year of Jubilee where they don't plant crops and they, they, they give the land another year of rest. But it's also a time when people who have lost their land due to debts and other things... It's restored to them. And people who have had to sell themselves and their families into slavery to pay their debts and to, and to take care of things are released and given freedom. That's why it's called the year of Jubilee. It's the year of celebration. It's the year of freedom and joy. What's fascinating is that there's very little evidence that the nation of Israel ever practiced 
the year of Jubilee. And you have to wonder if the reason they didn't practice it is because the people who held the slaves in the land didn't want to give them up. And they're the people who made the laws and who said, this is what we're going to do and this is what we're not going to do. The people with power and wealth and influence, they're the ones who said, I'm not giving that up. And so we're not practicing this. And while we don't do the same kinds of things in our world, we have to admit that we live in a world in which there are things about the way the world operates that are prejudiced against certain groups of people and biased against certain groups of people and make it a harder, more difficult struggle against certain groups of people. And this baby comes to tell us that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what my kingdom is about. Someone was, as I was talking about this with someone recently, they were saying, asking, well, does that mean that Christians shouldn't be involved in government? I think that's a really good question. And my response to that was, as I've thought about it, is I think it's good for Christians to be involved in government just as we are called to other ways in which we're involved in society and the world. And government should be one of those as long as our purpose for being involved is to serve and to be a voice for the voiceless and to be a presence to do good for all people. The problem is we look at some people in government and we see that it's all about self-interest. And that jades us to the the ability of government to do anything. But the reality is government needs the influence of the kingdom of Jesus as much as anything else in the world needs the influence of the kingdom of Jesus. Because the alternative is it's void of that. So there there is a calling to be involved in government. And it's a hard calling. It's difficult. But it's important to be a presence to serve, to be a presence for the voiceless, to be a presence to do good for all people. But we also have to recognize that any of the governments of this world are always going to be limited. We think about it for a moment. If the government passed every law that we want the government to pass, would that change the world? Would that be the final solution to the world that has been looking for? Hopefully it would make things better. But the reality is, even if we got everything we wanted, we can govern people, but we can't govern hearts. And what the world needs is the kingdom of Jesus. And in any way that we can communicate and share the kingdom of this of the Christ child, that's what we do, whether that's through the work that we do, our homes, the government, everything else that we may be a part of. The ultimate end is that people need Jesus. And the call of of the gospel on the people of God is that we bear witness of Jesus. One of the things that we we sometimes miss, or at least people misunderstand from us, is that this kingdom, the ultimate purpose of this kingdom is shalom. It is about bringing to this world the peace of God, the, the completeness, the fulfillment 
all the blessings of God that, that he created us to experience. And one day we will experience in the kingdom to come. And the call of God's people is to be a presence for shalom. Describing what Isaiah does in chapter 9. Describing what the Gospels tell us about Jesus. Describing all the ways of the kingdom of peace and completeness and fulfillment. And we bear witness to that. That if people could just see Jesus for who he is, then they would understand that following him is the greatest gift in the world. It's the best thing anyone could ever experience. And we're called to communicate that. But it's not always easy. I think we communicate that in the way that John describes Jesus. Now he comes to reveal the Father full of grace and truth. Living in that tension between grace and truth. And it's a hard tension to live, live in. We have a tendency to move the pendulum one way or the other, whatever might be most conducive to who we are and and maybe our personalities or how we see things. But the reality is we need both just as Jesus does. And that means we speak truth in a spirit of grace and we offer grace in the spirit of truth. And they're both vital. We need them both. And when we speak truth and grace, sometimes people are going to be offended by that. Sometimes people don't want to hear what the kingdom is about. But it doesn't keep us from communicating that. Now, there are there's a there's a difference between the gospel offending people and us offending people. I heard a. I heard a, 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 a popular preacher in America say a week or so ago that my goal when I stand up to preach every week is to offend everybody. And I thought, well, I think I know what you mean by that, but I'm not sure that's my goal as we get together every week. I mean, there is a place in which, yes, the gospel is, is offensive to people who reject the very principles of the gospel. But... It, We always live that and talk about that and communicate that in a spirit of grace because we love people. And what we're trying to help people see is that the pathway of their life is leading to destruction. And we're trying to help them turn around. And sometimes that means we have to say things that people don't want to hear. And they may... They may reject what we say. They may reject how we live and what's important to us and the nature and the principles of the kingdom. But we do it because we love It's not about self-interest. It's not about promoting ourselves. It's about love. And that's what we see in Jesus. But here's the thing that I've discovered. Is that we will only be able to reveal the nature of the kingdom. If we are people who pledge allegiance to the king. We will only communicate and reveal the nature of the kingdom if we are people who pledge allegiance to the king of the kingdom. Matthew Bates has written an insightful book that's titled Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And it's a fascinating study about how we view what it means to be a Christian. And he talks about how a lot of the time, when we think about being a Christian, our, my, our primary thing is, do we believe the right things? 
Do we have the right labels? Do we say the right prayers? Things that are, are important. But ultimately, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is ultimately pledging our allegiance to Jesus. And to pledge allegiance to him, pledge allegiance to anything, is to say, I'm all in with this. Everything about my life is about this. And so when we talk about pledging allegiance to the king, we're saying, I want what the king wants. My priorities are the same as the king's priorities. My desires are the king's desires. I want my vision to be the king's vision. I want my words to be the king's words. I want everything about my life to be about him rather than about me. And that means it's going to affect every single part of who we are. Our time, our energy, our money, our relationships. It means that we cannot live in a spirit of self-interest. We cannot live and say, well, I get to do whatever I want. It's only what God wants. And that's the challenge for us. And that's the call of the gospel. That is why this, the Christ child comes. And living in allegiance to the king means, as someone said to me recently, it's not just about yes, it's also about no. It's not just yes to Jesus, it's no to anything that would hinder us from saying yes to Jesus. As they said to me, it's like when you stand up in in front of whoever officiates at a wedding and you declare your vows to that person standing there next to you and you say, I do, and they say, I do. You're not just saying yes to them. You're saying no to every single person in the rest of the world. And yet pledging allegiance to the king is not just saying yes to Jesus. It's saying no to everything else at the heart of which is our self-interest. That I get to do what I want. That I get to say, say what I want to say. That I get to do what I want to do. And I know that it, that it may not be what Jesus wants, but I'm going to do it anyway. To pledge allegiance to the king is to say, God, that's not the way I want to live. Even if it means self-sacrifice, I guarantee you it will mean self-sacrifice. Even if it means that that my life is going to feel more difficult than it would otherwise. And I guarantee you, it's going to feel more difficult than it would otherwise. But it's leading us to God's created intent of shalom. Of life, of joy. And it gives us the strength and the ability to bear witness to others about the kingdom and the king. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about the king and not us. One of my favorite things about the the whole nativity story is when the prophet says, and the angel says to Joseph, that he will be Emmanuel, God with us. That is one of the most awesome promises and ideas we could ever imagine. But what I'm coming to realize is that God with us is not the end. God with us is the means to the end, which is God in control of us. And I think sometimes one of our struggles is that we love God with us because there's a certain element of sentimentality to that. God with me, and then I can just do what I want. 
But the reality is God with us is not the end. It is the means to living a life of God in control of us. It's a means of living a life declaring who's the king. And the whole season of Advent is a call to live between the now and the not yet. To live in this mindset that says, I I believe now what I will see then. When Jesus is born, it doesn't seem like anything in the world changes. Caesar's still the emperor. Herod's still the king. Quirinius is still the governor. The Romans are still in control of Israel. Everything looks the same when this baby is born. It doesn't seem to make any difference. And sometimes it feels like it doesn't make any difference now. But it does. We believe it does. Because the day is coming. When everything will be seen and everything will be clear. And all the, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The fascinating thing about the prophecy and Luke's gospel is that both of them, as someone said to me this week, both of them are declaring something that is going to happen before it even happens. That's kind of a picture of Advent. I remember when I was in high school, we had an evangelist come to our church and he was speaking about the end times. You know, that was a big deal in the 70s. You know, Hal Lindsey's books and the movies that came out. And, you know, most of it was just to scare us to death. And it did. It worked. It did scare us to death. Um, It still scares me to death to think of watching those movies. But but I remember this, this evangelist talking about the end times and telling us that there were places in California... Because, you know, all this stuff always starts in California, right? There, there, there were places in California that when you went to the store and you bought something to ring it up at the register, they scanned it over a light. The end times was on the brink. I mean, that, seriously, that was the whole sermon was about. And pretty soon, as the movies would show, we're going to be scanning people. And it's going to be, you know, this is, the, this is the end. This is the beginning of the end, and the time is close. I remember when I was in college working at a grocery store, a big chain grocery store. And the cashiers went to school for months to learn how to, this was before they had scanners, how to ring up groceries as fast as they could by punching in the numbers and codes on the key without ever looking at the, at the cash register. And, and they, had to, they just look at the product, and they would do this, and they were fast. And I'd just sit there and watch them, and I'm amazed because that's how you did things. And, of course, now it's very different, right? Now we scan everything. We scan things with our phones. We don't even have to go to the store to scan things. And sometimes it works, and there are times where sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, you get to the place where it's always either I'm the person in line and the thing won't scan, or I'm the person waiting in line for the people who their thing won't scan. And, you know, you can feel getting impatient. And I, I always used to say to the cashier, when they'd ring it up and nothing would happen, I would say to them, hmm, must be free. 
And I thought I was really being clever. I thought of this on my own. I thought, you know, I'm really, you know, thing. And then I read an article not too long ago that said 12 things that cashiers hate to hear. And the first one was, oh, it must be free. And their, their sarcastic response was, sure, that's exactly what's happening. Just pick out anything in the store you want and take it. It doesn't matter. I don't say that anymore after I read that article. Here's why I bring that up. It made me think about that because I was reading something from Dallas Willard recently. And he talked about our struggle with barcode faith. And he said, so often what we think about in becoming a Christian is putting a label on us. And he said, here's the thing. When you go to the store and you have a a bag of dog food, if for some reason, accidentally, there is a label on it that says it's ice cream, when it scans, the scanner says to you, that's ice cream. And you can spend all day arguing with that scanner. No, it's not. It's dog food. The scanner will say to you, no, it's not. It's ice cream. Because that's what the label says. It's ice cream. And the bag may contain dog food, but the scanner says it's ice cream. Because all the scanner can see is what's on the label, what's on the barcode. It has no idea, and quite frankly, it has no interest what's in the, what's the label is attached to. And Willard says one of our struggles as Christians is we think all we need is a label. I believe the right things. I pray to prayer. I follow my religious practices. All important things. But that's not really the point. The point is, who's the king? Has it changed our lives? Where's our allegiance? Because the the gospel is not about labels. It's about our hearts, our attitudes, who we are. And the call of the gospel is to pledge allegiance to the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And to let him take control of our lives. That's the pathway to flourishing. That's the pathway to shalom with God. And that's the only way in which we are going to be able to influence the world for the king and his kingdom. It is awesome that we declare this baby is the king of all. But the only way anyone will ever believe that we believe that's true. If he's the king of us. If he's first in our lives. Our allegiance is to him. There are always things that are going to get in our way. Always things that vie for our our attention. There are always rivals. And maybe today is the perfect time for you and me to declare, maybe for the first time or once again, I pledge my allegiance to Jesus, the King. Holy Father, thank you Thank you that you want more for us than we want for ourselves. Thank you that this baby is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our prayer 
that you would give us grace to so open our hearts that he becomes our king, our Lord, as we pledge allegiance to him. And in doing so, find the joy of his coming and his life. We ask this through Christ Jesus.